Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Winds in the east. Mist coming in. Like something is brewing. About to begin. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, it's given away in the title, really. I'm here to talk of the stories of films, and I tend to talk about production stories, marketing stories, release stories, development stories, all those ingredients that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast, they lean more towards the mainstream than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I'm trying really hard not to do snark. I try really hard not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of cinema and a real appreciation that somehow, no matter how difficult, films manage to exist. And that is all the setup you need for this podcast. No great big lengthy intros. We're going straight into the first of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories. We're going right the way back to the 1940s. Let me play you the trailer for the film and I'll come to the story of this one straight after this. Well, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. What is it you want, Mary? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. Sentimental hogwash. I wish I had a million dollars. Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. This is what I wished for. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. That is the trailer for 1946's It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra. Screenplay credited to Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett and Frank Capra, with a bit of Joe Swirling in there as well. It's based on The Greatest Gift, written by Philip Van Doren Stern, coming to that shortly, and a cast that includes James Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, Thomas Mitchell, Henry Travers, Bully Bonday, Ward Bond, Frank Phelan and Gloria Graham. And the story of It's a Wonderful Life bizarrely of all things it goes back to well effectively a christmas card so in 1938 
the writer Philip Van Doren Stern, who'd penned several books, well, he'd come up with this new story called The Greatest Gift. And it was about a man called George who was feeling suicidal at Christmas. And, I mean, you may be familiar with roughly what happened after that. But the story ran to somewhere in the region of 4,000 words in the end. And Stern put it out to market, see if anyone would pick it up. And no one bought the rights to it. And for a couple of years, I mean, it's just one of those stories that just sat in the drawer, that publishers weren't interested in it, couldn't get it published anywhere. And so he, in the end, he was writing his Christmas cards. And in 1943, if you were one of 200 people on Philip Van Doren Stern's Christmas card list, you wouldn't just have got a card off him. You would have got a copy of this story, the card, 21 pages of story inside your card. I mean, you you think hiding a 10 pound note is tricky. And... It was The Greatest Gift that was read by a bunch of people and, I mean, effectively as a Christmas card extra. And to Stern's surprise, there was a lesson in here, just just hiding in the midst of it, because sometimes it's not the size of the audience you get, it's who happens to be in the audience. And one of the people who got the card was Stern's agent. And via a, a series of communique, a copy of The Greatest Gift ended up on the desk of a producer by the name of David Hempstead. Well, David Hempstead read the story and really liked it. So much so that he wanted to option it. He thought they could make a film out of this. Now, Hempstead was working for RKO Pictures and the studio took, therefore, a $10,000 option on The Greatest Gift. That would be a six-figure sum by today's money. And this was in early 1944, so still in the midst of the Second World War. But work got underway on a screenplay, yet it would take some time, well, certainly some writers, to be able to get to the nub of what we ultimately got. And it's like Dalton Trumbo, for instance, who was recently played on screen by... Brian Cranston and is the subject of one of Kirk Douglas's books as well about the making of Spartacus very very worth digging out that Dalton Trumbo took a look at it and couldn't really crack it several writers I'll come back to them shortly also had a go and there are lots of different versions of what became It's a Wonderful Life with different scenes different approaches that you, you can research and dig into but for RKO in the end I mean it's just getting frustrated with it the war's cut the war came to an end and it's like well, what do we do with this project? And so it had a fresh idea because whilst for a while it was looking at casting Cary Grant in the lead role, had it got things together quicker than it did? Well, the thing was, it didn't things were taking a bit of time and so Charles Kerner was the person who was running the studio at this point and he got the material to Frank Capra now Frank Capra is a, obviously one of Hollywood's most legendary directors and he took a look at the material and he really liked it now fortuitously for the purposes of this story he just set up his production company this was by the name of Liberty Films he was looking for a first project for that production company and it had a deal with RKO that ran to about eight or nine movies and so here was here was a way that RKO could sort of mitigate its risk a little bit get Capra on board to tackle the film and hopefully just get it moving get it moving a bit quicker than it had been so 
But Capra, like many filmmakers, had been making propaganda films during World War II. In fact, he hadn't made a narrative dramatic feature film for several years at this point. And he was actively looking for a project that could rekindle his love of cinema, or more specifically, his love of making feature films. So he had a couple of options. One that he was zeroing towards was a remake of a film he made in 1934 called Broadway Bill. This was a horse racing comedy, but he couldn't get the rights back in order to take another run at that material and so he took a look at it's a wonderful life and i mean he was he was convinced he was interested and so he signed up yeah he was going to do this it was going to be under his liberty films banner and he had a new project well with frank capra coming on board that meant uh, just a fresh approach to the casting there was only one person in we see this so often that in stories like this but there was only one person in his mind who he felt could play the role and you have to i mean you have to give him credit for this he wanted Jimmy Stewart, the legendary Jimmy Stewart, had been serving in World War Two and the war ended. And Stewart, too, was thinking about exiting the film business. He's thinking about giving up acting altogether. The experiences he'd gone through during the war had just ch- turned his head a little bit and led him considering a different way forward in life. But Capra set his sights on casting Stewart in the film, yet had to take some time to persuade him. And as it turned out, it's a fairly legendary quote, this, the pitch that Capra made to Stuart wasn't particularly great. The more he tried to explain the picture, the less well, the, the less coherent, really, it started to sound. But as Jimmy Stewart would say to Frank Capra, Frank, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down named Clarence who can't swim and I save him, when do we start? And that was that. Stuart was on board. Capra was on board. The rest of the cast would come together as well. Donna Reed took her first leading role alongside James Stewart in the film. And uh, Bula Bondi was added as Mrs. Bailey. And the aforementioned cast was just gradually fleshed out. But that didn't mean they'd reached resolution on the screenplay because the script was still in degrees of flux. Now, in the end, it's said to be around six screenwriters as well as Capra who had their hands in it. And those were names such as Dorothy Parker, Clifford Odets, Mark Connolly. But I mean, the bit we're, the, the couple we're going to zero in on here is the husband and wife writing team, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. Now, Goodrich and Hackett, as you heard, were credited on the final movie. They were top credited for the screenplay on the final movie. But there's an, an article that appeared in the New York Times back in 2001 that was penned by David L. Goodrich, who's their, ne- their nephew. And he threw some light on the experience that his uncle and aunt had had working with Frank Capra on It's a Wonderful Life. And as as he wrote, the Hackett's and Capra, well, they were getting along smoothly at first. Then the writers learned that Frank Capra had hired Joe Swirling. Now, Swirling, a successful screenwriter, was rewriting the pages that the Hackett's were, were penning first, that then they would go over to Capra and Swirling and they would work on the material behind the back of the two screenwriters, Goodrich and Hackett. And as was explained, Joe Swirling was a very close friend of ours. And when we heard that he was working behind us, which was supposed to be against the rules of the Screen Actors, the Screenwriters Guild, it was a very unpleasant feeling. And so, I mean, the, these were the words of Albert Goodrich in an interview that he gave before he died. And he also said in an interview that relations worsened between Capra and the writers when Capra started calling Francis my dear woman. And as Albert said, Frank Capra could be condescending and you just didn't address Francis as my dear woman. 
And so he said, when we were pretty far along in the script but not done, our agent called and said, Capra wants to know how soon you'll be finished. And so Francis said, we're finished right now. And the pair of writers, they just put their pens down and didn't go back to the project at all. There was, well, let's just say, not an exchange of Christmas cards going on between Hackett, Goodrich and Frank Capra. And I mean, the New York Times has this lovely phrase in its article where it says, in later years, describing Capra's behaviour, both Francis and Albert, again, this is the New York Times writing, use language unprintable in a family newspaper. My life. Still, in the midst of all of this, uh, with Swirling and Capra also working on the screenplay, they did have a script. And there were, I mean, there were still casting bits to sort out. I mean, Henry Fonda at one point was considered for the lead role. Jean Arthur was considered for the role of Mary as well. And in fact, turned it down in the end. And a whole bunch of actors came close to the film and just didn't get it. Olivia de Havilland, for instance, Martha Scott, Anne Jorak, Ginger Rogers. But it was Donna Reed in the end who took that key lead role. And there's a lot of what ifs in, in, in and around the production, really, of It's a Wonderful Lie. But still, on April the 15th, 1946, filming could begin on the movie. Some eight years after the story had first been fashioned and three years, well, less than three years, really, after the Christmas card was sent that started all of this off. It was a heat wave that, that, that they found themselves in for large parts of the production. That this beloved Christmas film with lots of snow around was shot in California at a point where the temperatures were soaring. Some of the sweat that you see on screen is sweat because of the heat. And so, in fact, the heat was so bad at one point it led to production just shutting down for a day. They just had to wipe one day off the schedule. It had originally come together as a film with a production budget of around $2 million that it was going to be relatively contained. I mean, $2 million was not cheap by 1946 standards, but still... What had started to knock the price tag up was the number of writers, the number of delays, the amount of tinkering that was going on. Still, the film was housed primarily on the RKO Radio Picture Studios complex in California, but then also on its ranch that it also had in the vicinity. Now, there was some degree of set reusage from the 1931 film Cimarron, but the key set, I mean, the key set in It's a Wonderful Life is the town of Bedford Falls. And this was a, a, an incredibly detailed piece of production work that it covered four acres of the ranch that uh, RKO had for filming. And at the point that the film was made, it was regarded as one of the biggest and most detailed movie sets that had ever been built. That the Bedford Falls that was built for the screen had 75 shops and buildings. It had oak trees on it. It had factories. It had a, a main street that ran for 300 yards. And there was an awful lot of space in which for Capra to, to make his film. Now, Mark Harris, whose name comes up a couple of times in this podcast, has charted some of the story of It's a Wonderful Life in his excellent book, Five Came Back, A Story of Hollywood and the Second World War, which talks about directors, legendary directors, really, coming back after the war and really trying to get back into the career that they had before it. 
As Harris would chart in his book, It's a Wonderful Life was not in the slightest a happy production. That what was supposed to be a relatively modest film was overrunning, was ballooning. And more to the point for Frank Capra, on his shoulders was the future of his company. Because as the cost went up, it was putting his own business at risk. That there were script rewrites they had to be paid for. There was a shooting schedule that was intense and threatening to overrun as well the crew kept changing as well and so even before they got to the end of filming most of the two million dollars had gone and it was clear that this was a film that was going to cost a fair amount more than had been originally budgeted there all the little details in there i mean just imagine the snow now it's not the most natural bedfellow for it's a wonderful life but you go back say to the podcast we did on die hard 2 when they're they're going to areas of the country where they felt they had snow and the cost balloon when they had to import the snow in and manufacture their own snow this was another problem that it's It's a Wonderful Life was having that the fake snow was proving challenging things were not going well and to the point where Capra's company had originally borrowed 1.5 million dollars to help make the film and he was very much on the line for this the Hackett's, meanwhile, well, going back to the piece in the New York Times, they picked up an anecdote from one of the actors in the film, Bula Bondé, and she was playing Jimmy Stewart's mother. But she, a story that she told got to Frances Goodrich, and she recalled that Bondé said the most miraculous thing happened. There is this scene which is just words, 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 and it couldn't play. And this was during the shoot. So Capra shut down for the day and told us to come back the next morning. And he came in the next morning with a simple lovely scene and it worked of course what had happened is they'd gone back to the original writing and that the scene that had been made more complicated by the rewrites that Capra was overseeing was kind of just stripped right back down to where they their original starting point it was the one that had originally been put together and these were the kind of things that were just helping the cost of the movie to balloon in the end the budget on It's a Wonderful Life went up to 3.7 million dollars it cost nearly double what it had been expected to make. Uh, just to illustrate that, if I put the numbers into an inflation adjuster, in 1946 money, $2 million would come in now at $31.5 million in 2023 when this has been recorded. The the increased price of the movie, $3.7 million, would come in at $58 million. It is equivalent of adding nearly $27 million to the budget in, in 2023 numbers. And this was not a production whose budget was expected to soar absolutely through the roof either and it was also again a production that its director was financially invested in heavily to the point where his company was depending on him. On July the 27th 1946 filming wrapped up on It's a Wonderful Life that there were different endings there was lots of material shot and it was going to take a little while for Capra to fashion his final cut of the movie. Still working with uh, editor William Hornbeck the film was readied for a release on December the 20th 1946. Now It hadn't originally, which seems remarkable given the reputation of the film now, been been scheduled as a Christmas movie. In fact, RKO, which was distributing the film, had earmarked it for release in early January. But when a different feature 
dropped out of its Christmas slot. RKA decided to give it a limited release just before Christmas. And so it went into cinemas on December the 20th, 1946, on a limited run in the US. The reception to the movie was, well, if you go to the critical response, it was good. But still, I mean, given that we're talking about a film regarded as an absolute flat-out classic and a film that regularly hits the list of the best films ever made, it would be fair to say the reviews were were not reflecting that at the time. I think they'd probably go somewhere in the four-star area, something like that. There was a lot of praise for Jimmy Stewart, but there was also just, I don't know, there there was something about the film that just wasn't clicking in the way that you might have thought with critics. Now, the problem then was that the film wasn't hitting with audiences either, that we don't have access to weekly box office charts from 1946. But what we do know is that when the film went into cinemas, by the time it came back out, it its original box office run came in at $3.3 million. This was a film that was in loss. And of course, this was an era at that point where you couldn't rely on the home video release. There was no great big tale of ways that a film could instantly make its money. And so what Capra was staring down the loss at was basically a half a million dollar, I think it was $525 loss on the film. I should note that there was a dispute, perhaps, <laughs> Perhaps inevitably over the writing credits on It's a Wonderful Life, that the final screenplay was in the end credited to Goodrich, to Hackett and to Capra with the no additional scenes by Joe Swirling. Now, Capra wasn't happy with that. He said that the screenwriters arbitration committee decided that Hackett and Goodrich and I should get the credit for the writing and said that Joe Swirling hasn't talked to me since. Now, this was an interview given in the early 1950s and it took, I mean, there was just an unhappiness at the core of that relationship there. In 1944, by the way, just a couple of years before the film was released, it is also worth noting that that story that started it all, The the Greatest Gift, did actually make it into print, that Philip Van Doren Stern got it printed in two different American magazines around the end of that year. So it did finally see the light of day in its original form. And, I mean, this is interesting because the actual film varies a fair amount from the story that Stern originally wrote. There's a lot of variance, really, across the vari- what the various screenwriters brought to him. So, ordinarily, that would be that. The film picked up five Oscar nominations, but it didn't win any of them. It was up for Best Picture, but it lost to The Best Years of Our Lives, which swept all the categories it was competing with It's a Wonderful Life in, apart from one, the best sound recording, went to uh, the Jolson story. But... Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor and Best Film Editing all went to the best years of our lives. There was a technical Oscar given out to the RKO Radio Studio Special Effects Department and that was for a development of a new method of simulating falling snow on motion picture sets. I think we can all agree that It's a Wonderful Life snow looks really rather good, especially considering just how hot it was at the point the snow was supposed to be supposed to be falling. But other than that, it, that 
generally would have been it the story would be gone no no second chance for the film had it not been this is one of my favorite bits of the it's a wonderful life story had it not been for an administration error now this isn't the only time this has happened if you go to george a romero's night of the living dead by the the fact that there's not a copyright included on the credits of that film has basically made that a, a, a public domain open house movie it's why people can take that and put it out on dvd left right and center as they once upon a time did in the case of it's a wonderful life a film that capra himself didn't even consider a christmas film well its fortunes would eventually turn in 1974 now by that point capra's company had somewhat inevitably gone bust and liberty films was then bought up by paramount pictures in 1947 and thus paramount pictures for a little while had the rights to the movie then republic pictures also picked that up and so then it took the movie on but the way copyright law was working meant that in in the US copyright protection lasted 28 years from publication now there's a really big article on this on the library at the library of congress website the official US library of congress and if you didn't file a renewal uh, after your 28 years that means you're, you you lose the copyright to your work and republic pictures forgot or, or for whatever reason, did not file that renewal. So what that meant is from 1974, for a period of decades in the end, It's a Wonderful Life became effectively a public domain film. If you owned a television station, you wanted to show it, didn't have to pay anyone a bean. You could just show it. If you wanted to put it out in any format at all, although it wasn't the DVD era, um, you, you could just do it. There was no copyright protection on the film. Now, against this i mean you look at what happened to frank capra after it's a wonderful life he would only make a couple more feature films across the rest of his life he lived till 1991 i think he made three more films and that that is your lot after it's a wonderful life jimmy stewart considered quitting again at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, when it didn't go down as had been expected. Uh, Goodrich and Hackett, well, they were so bitter after their experience working with Capra that, that for many years they decided not even to watch the film. But in the end, television would turn the fortunes of the movie because as the copyright lapsed, it meant that US television stations played it time and time and time and time again. And the reputation of the film enhanced significantly as a result. It had to wait nearly 30 years for its second coming. But when it came, well, we're at the point recording this podcast and it is one of the most cherished movies of all time. Certainly one of the most cherished movies without Muppets in for the Christmas period. And as Capra once told the Wall Street Journal, it is the damnedest thing I've ever seen. The film has a life of its own now and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. He explained, I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president but he says I'm proud but it's the kid who did the work I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it I just liked the idea and it would go on to be the favorite of all of Capra's films of all the ones that he made this was the one that he cited as his favorite Jimmy Stewart would cite it as his favorite as well 
And then the story took another slight turn in 1993 as a result of a ruling from the US Supreme Court. Now, in 1990, the Supreme Court had ruled over the copyright to another film that happened to start Jimmy Stewart, Rear Window, another film with an extensive set build as well. I've got to come to that in a future podcast. Love Rear Window. But what it meant was the copyright on Rear Window could be enforceable. And so Republic saw its opportunity, it's seen the popularity of the film soar, and now it had a chance to to re-establish its copyright on him. Now, Republic had a strong case in this instance because it still, as it turned out, had the rights to the original story. It still owned the screen rights to those. It also had picked up the music rights as well, and the ruling was that the film's copyright was now enforceable again. And so from 1993, all of those effectively public main screenings and television station free-for-all came to a very abrupt end when it became clear that now all the people who wanted to show the film would have to pay up for the privilege of doing so. Interestingly what happened then is Republic decided to protect it a little bit and limit the number of times it could be shown at Christmas. And so, for instance, in 1994, the exclusive television rights were sold in the US to the network NBC, but the deal was it could only be screened, I think it's twice every Christmas, which I think is still the case in America as well, although there are other screenings that have taken place, but that's a whole other part. It's also now had a very healthy home video and DVD and Blu-ray and 4K release as well over time too. There was, I should note, a brief moment where there was an attempt to colourise it. This was in the 1980s and there was a little run of films like this that they were looking at putting into colour around this time. It ended up with Jimmy Stewart going before Congress in the US to protest about the film being put into colour. And now no one, I think, would even think of touching it. And the black and white version, the original version, the proper version is the one that thrives and the one that keeps coming up over and over and over again. The impact of It's a Wonderful Life on popular culture continues. It's referenced left, right and centre and it, I mean it's just inspired a horror film at the point that this podcast is being recorded. It also stands as a real comeback movie, a film that could have in any other time, had it not been for a bit of a fluke, been forgotten just been lost just been seen by a small number of people as it turns out it has gone on to be rightly and richly an absolute beloved classic if you've never had the pleasure even if you're not the kind of person who ordinarily goes for a black and white film don't read the synopsis don't do anything just watch it it took me way too long to take the plunge for it's a wonderful life personally it wasn't until i was deep into my 20s when i watched it for the first time it is brilliant 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 and thankfully for this podcast as well has quite a film story behind it head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long catch the acclaimed movie all of us strangers starring paul muscal and andrew scott stream the new hulu original limited series we were the lucky ones with joey king and logan lerman and don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Which brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your time. A few parish notices to bore you with before I get to the second of the two films I'm going to talk about. At the point this podcast is being released, we are days away from a very, very special screening of Kenneth Branagh's Christmas film In the Bleak Midwinter, so rarely seen on the big screen. I've managed to secure, thanks to lots of other people, a 35mm print that he's going to screen at Picturehouse Central in London on Friday the 15th of December And Kenneth Branagh is coming along to talk to us afterwards in person, in the flesh, in the room with us. We will record it. We will put it out. But this is your chance to be in the room. If you go to the Picture House website, just search that in Google, go to the Picture House website, search for Branagh. Tickets are available there. Our profits are going to Centrepoint. At the point this is being recorded as well, I've just released, well, I've just sent to print the latest issue of Film Stories magazine. There is a huge preview of British films uh, on the front cover of that as well as an abundance of stuff in there we've got 168 pages again it has damn near killed us if you would like a copy of that magazine if you go to store.filmstories.co.uk it's available for order there it's primarily a mail order magazine then if you like this podcast there are there's a trio of ways really outside of listening thank you for listening in which you can support it if you want to support it financially if you want to support the broader film stories project and what we're up to if you go to patreon.com slash simon brew put some coins in the pot there you get the podcast early for a start you get it ad free also you find out the gossip of what we're up to behind the scenes and it's already looking like 2024 is going to be scarily busy costing you absolutely nothing is just to subscribe to it your podcast home of choice for independent podcasts that is gold dust i can't tell you what gold dust that is and likewise if you don't mind if you don't mind leaving ideally a hugely positive review stuff like that is really really beneficial to us as well thank you to everybody who's supported thank you to to all the people who've left all those nice reviews as well. But I think that's enough parish notices. I want to get on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories. I'm moving forward several decades now. We're going to the 2010s. Uh, again, let me set this up with a clip from the trailer. I'm going to come to the story the other side of this. Ladies and gentlemen, we are beginning our descent into Los Angeles. Welcome, Mrs. P.L. Travers, to the City of Angels. It smells like... Jasmine. Chlorine and sweat. <laughs> Introducing the creator of our beloved Mary. Poppins. Never ever just Mary. Now, where is Mr. Disney? She's here. Well, family travelers, you can't imagine how excited I am to finally meet you. Would you mind? My name is Mrs. Travers, Mr. Disney. Oh, Walt, now you gotta call me Walt. 20 years ago, I made a promise to my daughters that I would make your Mary Poppins fly off the pages of your books. I promise them, I know what he's going to do to her. She'll be cavorting and twinkling. He can't be the film unless you grant the rights. Damn. Now, let us begin. Room here. She has a lot of ideas. What kind of ideas? Constable's responsible. Now, how no, 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 does that no. sound? No, 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 no. Responsible is not a word. We made it up. Well, unmake it up. 
And that is a delightful chunk of the trailer for Saving Mr. Banks, dating all the way back to 2013. Directed by John Lee Hancock, written by Kelly Marcel and Sue Smith, and starring Emma Thompson, Tom Hanks, Paul Giamatti, Jason Schwartzman, Bradley Whitford and Colin Farrell. Now, Ian Colley is not a name that's come up on this podcast before, actually, in like 350 episodes or so. A producer and an executive at the company Essential Media. That's who Ian Colley was or is. And Essential Media, based in Australia, as Colley, he went off to a bookshop and he picked up a copy of E.L. Travis's original Mary Poppins book. Now, lots of us know Mary Poppins through the Disney film, but he went back to the book itself and reading the jacket notes, he learned that Travers was actually Australian. Now this was news to Ian Colley and his interest was piqued and so he went back to Essential Media and thought there might be something in this. Started working on a documentary and that documentary would be released and called The Shadow of Mary Poppins telling part of the story of E.L. Travers. But while he was putting that documentary together there was just this niggling thought in his head that there's a feature film in this there's a biopic in this there's something more to the story and so he decided to do something about it and again through the essential media outlet he approached a writer by the name of sue smith and asked her to put together a draft of the film smith an australian screenwriter and playwright she put together a few goes at the screenplay that would follow Travers as she went from Australia to London and the story of bringing Mary Poppins to life with lots of other little side bits of Travers's life in there. Now this script then went to London ironically enough as as Travers had done to a company called Ruby Films and that's where a producer by the name of Alison Owen got involved. Now Owen had produced films such as Elizabeth and Shaun of the Dead And she liked the script and wanted to make it. Thought, again, there's something in this. There was an elephant in the room that would would haunt the production for a period of time in that it was talking about a very heavily copyrighted Disney property and Disney's lawyers aren't necessarily always regarded as the friendliest people. But still... Alison Owen pursued the development of the film and she brought in a different writer. And this is where Kelly Marcel came in. Now, Kelly Marcel's background, uh, it's just fascinating. It's almost Tarantino-esque, really. She was working full-time in a video store, writing scripts, hoping that they get noticed. Amongst the things she'd written, actually, she did a stage musical, uh, Debbie Does Dallas the Musical. She wrote the stage play of that. But one of her pitches then got some traction because she came up with a TV show by the name of Terra Nova. And this went to an agent and the agent just put it out there and there was interest in Los Angeles. And so the suggestion was Kelly Marcel's got to get on a plane, go over to America, leave the video store behind and pitch the show, which is exactly what she did. And the show was picked up. Steven Spielberg ended up producing the show and Marcel was offered a reported $300,000 per episode to write it. Now, she was not flush with cash, but she turned this down. And as she explained to Slash Film, actually, that she said, it's a really difficult one for me because the show that I created is not the show that got made. And she said, I think it's public knowledge that I decided not to stay with the show. I left it and went back to work in the video store, in fact, which she argued was kind of crazy. And I think she's probably right. But 
it worked out for her in the end because the Terra Nova show was not brilliantly received. And so she got the money for selling it. But because her name wasn't on the scripts, then she wasn't really hurt by the failure of it when it was cancelled after just one season. Still, she was back in her video store and it was Alison Owen who suggested that Kelly Marcel might like to take a look at this script for what was becoming Saving Mr Banks. So she took a look at the material and as per an interview with The Wrap, she would change a lot of what had been done before. In fact, she would narrow it so it would, it would really zoom in on two different things. One was a story about Travers's battle with Disney over Mary Poppins and the other was more of her family and growing up. But again, there it was again. There was Walt Disney in the film and is Disney going to let you have the rights to make a film about Walt Disney? There's a fair a fair bet that Disney would have been relatively protective of that. Now, again, Marcel explained a bit more about what she did change to Slash Film. And she said of the original script, some of it was about her and a lot of it was about her relationship with her alcoholic son. And it's a beautiful story. It's very sad and incredibly tragic. But as Marcel noted, it's not the story that Alison Owen felt she wanted to make a film about and so Owen had approached Marcel and said you know come to me and said told me about when P.L. Travers came to Los Angeles and met with Walt and worked in the rehearsal room and Owen said uh, Owen said to Marcel I was like do you think that could be the film can you rewrite this and reimagine this Kelly Marcel yeah absolutely I think it's a great story and I'd love to and that's where she started and so she fashioned her drafts of the script with no access at all to any of the Disney materials working very much from the outside but putting the story together now in the aftermath of the release of Saving Mr Banks a lot would be made of bits that have been fictionalised and inaccuracies that were seen in the telling of the story and part of that was deliberate but also it is worth noting again that at the point this was being developed that Marcel and Sue Smith as well were on the outside and so they they were fill a degree of filling in gaps she completed the script and again, there were still unresolved problems here. But one of the key things that really gave the project a massive boost was when it appeared on the blacklist of the best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. If you are unfamiliar with this, it is voted for by Hollywood insiders and the people who read all the scripts and films such as Argo have ended up on the blacklist before. And if you end up on there, there's a sporting chance that your film is going to get or your potential film is going to get an awful lot more profile than it ordinarily would have done that was certainly the case here so let's switch the story to inside the towers of disney and let's focus then on the production president of disney in the early 2010s a man called sean bailey now it's as you might expect over the years at disney time and time again the idea of doing a film of the story of walt disney had been suggested and had been resisted time and time again it was seen certainly from the outside looking in as an absolute no-no there's no way you'd want to tackle that that inevitably there are controversies in the life and times of walt disney as well and it's just did disney really want to go there well the answer to that generally was regarded as no but then this script came in and it was one of the vice presidents at Disney who called Sean Bailey at home in the autumn of 2011 and it just said that you need to drop whatever you're doing and read a script and that was the screenplay to Saving Mr Banks and as Bailey recalled to the rap number one 
it's very good and it's out in the world. But then number two, one of its protagonists is Walt Disney. And so there was a discussion that took place. Disney was headed up by his first run at running the company by Bob Iger at this point. And the studio brass knew that the script was out there and for sale. Knew that other studios would be relatively reticent to buy it just because of the potential legal challenge involved. But also there was a very serious conversation that took place. Should Disney basically buy this and bury the project and make sure no one else could even touch it? And so they had to make that call. They had the option, of course, if they really wanted to, of they could buy it and make it too. But again, from the outside looking in, that didn't look like the option that Disney would pick. However, the script had gone down well. It had a couple of things very much in its favour. Number one, it wasn't actually a biopic of Walt Disney. I think that was fairly crucial in making sure that the film eventually got the green light. And secondly, it had been entirely developed outside the studio. So it wasn't cloyed and clogged up by notes from executives at the point the story was being developed. And what they got was a fully formed script, really, that told a slice of Disney history that happened to have Walt Disney at the heart of it. In February 2012, Disney bought the film. And more than that, Disney decided this is good. We should make it. It was going to go for it. I don't think it did any harm either that Disney was deep into work on a new, a second Mary Poppins film at this stage. Um, but still, in 2012, in February 2012, once Disney had snapped it up, it, I mean, the personnel came together really rather quickly. That John Lee Hancock, the director John Lee Hancock, well, he was coming off the back of the hugely successful and also contentious The Blind Side, the film that won Sandra Bullock an Oscar. And he entered talks about directing the movie. Now, he had a couple of projects on the go at this point. The other option he had in front of him, well, he'd been announced as the director of the film The Partner, based on the novel by John Grisham. Hollywood used to love making films out of John Grisham books. Less so now. And at the point this has been recorded, again, in 2023, The Partner still hasn't come to life. But for a little while, that John Lee Hancock was attached to do it. Now, Deadline reported at the same point that this was regarded now all of a sudden as, quote, a hot project. And names that were being banded around, well, Meryl Streep was in line to play Travers and Tom Hanks to possibly play Disney. But the idea was, once Disney decided to make it, let's get it into production this year. And, you know, why wouldn't it? The script was agreed to be pretty much ready. There wasn't an awful lot that needed doing to it. However, there were changes that were coming because to the surprise of all the people who got it to this point, Disney then utterly embraced the film. As one person said, they threw money at the film as well. And what this meant was that Kelly Marcel suddenly had access to a whole lot more in the way of research than she'd had when she was writing the original screenplay, that Disney opened up its vaults and Marcel could spend time in there. They could, she could go through Walt Disney's correspondence. She could hear these amazing tapes of the sessions with P.L. Travers and the Sherman Brothers, the legendary songwriters, the Sherman Brothers. And she got a, a much deeper flavour than she hadn't originally had when she was writing the script. And so she started reworking the film. 
Disney also introduced her to Richard Sherman, the survivor of the two Sherman brothers. And Marcel described him as completely invaluable. And they got those tapes of when everyone was in the room, listened to them. And what it meant for Marcel, and she was conscious of this, the film that now she was delivering to Disney was different from the one that the studio had actually bought. This was no longer that original script to Saving Mr Banks. Because of all the fresh information she'd had, it had turned into an altered version of it. But again, to the surprise, Disney was embracing this. There wasn't the pushback on it. There wasn't pushback either on the portrayal of Walt Disney himself, that it's implied that he smokes and drinks in the film, for instance, and that is not generally the image that Disney puts out of its founder, that the smoke, I mean, there was still conversation. I think it was a 10 minute chat, I think it was, about whether he could be seen smoking on screen. Instead, you get him coughing on screen. But even that feels quite radical in the halls of modern Disney and there were 32 hours of tape in the end of the conversations between Travers and the, the assorted people working on the film the Sherman Brothers particularly that they now had full access to and while Marcel was fashioning the script and Disney was continuing to back the script Bob Iger put in a call to the man he felt should play Walt Disney that man being Tom Hanks the Jimmy Stewart of his era and Hanks was receptive to this that he took the call from Iger and it was just a yeah okay he threw himself into research for the role it's effectively the supporting role in the film as well but still Hanks knew the importance of this particular portrayal and so he would watch he would watch an awful lot of Walt Disney footage he would listen to Walt Disney talking he would try and just get the mannerisms he would try and get the cadences of Disney and then crucially as well he committed to the facial hair as as Hanks would note uh, on the press junket for say in Mr Banks there was a lot of discussion about the moustache that he organically grew to play Disney and how it was shaped and modelled to exactly match or as close as they were going to get the one that Disney sported the face fur that Disney sported himself in real life Hanks then was announced as on board in April of 2012 and also on board was not Meryl Streep but Emma Thompson. Now Emma Thompson just applied herself to similar levels of intense research to get this right and she also was growing around here she didn't want to wear a wig to play this she wanted to fully commit as Emma Thompson tends to do with her roles she would go through those tapes as well she would go deep into research to capture the character that she was going to bring to the screen in July Jason Schwartzman and Paul Giamatti also signed up and then filming began. I mean, when you consider that Disney snapped this up in February 2012 and Marcel was doing rewrites as well. Filming actually began in September 2012. That was just a seven month period between the purchase and the cameras being unpacked. Now, there was a plan originally just to shoot a little bit of the film in Australia, but that plan, for whatever reason, was shelved. There was a bit of material that was captured in London, but the bulk of the film would be shot in California. In fact, it would be shot a lot on the Disney Studios lot itself, but also there was material that they needed to capture in the Disneyland Park. Well, fortunately, Disney owned one of those, and it was very, very close to its base in California. And so what happened was 
was early in the morning before the crowds descended on the park that they did some shooting uh, they, some shooting on location there it did involve some elements of the park having to be redressed in 1960s regalia just to capture the the right look for the film but i'd imagine if you were a visitor to disneyland at that point and you saw everything redressed in a 19 uh, 1950s 60s look you weren't going to mind that much if tom hanks and emma thompson were shooting a film there the major set that they had to build was the animation building, which is where we see the sequences of the Shermans and Travers, let's just say, go head to head a little bit in the movie. That was a sizable build. And the production designer here was Michael Corenblith. He went through 500 photos of Walt Disney's office as well. There is a display of Disney's office furniture that was in an exhibit at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. The Hollywood Reporter noted all of this. And so there were a lot of real touch points that the production team could could just lean into just to get the look of the Disney offices right. The filming wrapped up in November of 2012 and I mean, it gave them nearly a year just to fashion the final cut of the film but it wasn't an elongated edit. I don't have stories of how the post-production on this was particularly troubled and instead the plan for Disney was to release this in cinemas for the autumn of 2013. There was a feeling that there might actually be a good shot at an Oscar run here and the springboard for that was the premiere at the London Film Festival on October the 20th, 2013. The reception to the film was generally quite good as well. I'm a huge fan of this movie, but I mean, it, whether it had serious Oscar juice was extinguished, I think, by a lot of the early response that was noting this was quite a sanitised version of the story that we were getting. It's a very family friendly version of it that as much as it was a likeable film, there weren't that many people going to bat saying it was a great film, although Emma Thompson's performance was very much rated as a great performance I, I do think it's an astonishing performance as well and one of the things if you see Saving Mr Banks I'm sure if you've seen it you've done this if you sit through the end credits you do get some of those original Travers recordings and you hear the material that Thompson was working with to get that character on the screen and it's it's quite remarkable and, and fascinating slice of film history just listening to all that happen Following the London Film Festival debut, Disney then decided to open the movie in the UK first. Uh, it came to British cinemas on November the 29th, 2013. It didn't make it to America until December the 13th, 2013. And when it did so, it it followed the standard way of releasing a film that's not a massive blockbuster, but you hope has awards attention. So you open it on a limited number of screens first. In the case of Saving Mr. Banks, it opened on 15 screens that particular weekend. It took a screen average of $27,000, not the highest screen average in the chart. That went to American Hustle, which was also opening uh, slowly. Sony opened it that week on six screens. But a promising start for the film. The the film at the top of the chart the week it opened was The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smag, which had 73 million. Saving Mr. Banks wasn't really in that department, but up went the screens to over 2,000 the following week and up went the box office. A $9.3 million second weekend was, again, decent money. The second Hobbit film was still holding out at number one. Anchorman 2 The Legend Continues opened with $26 million that weekend. Walking with Dinosaurs 3D opened with $7 million. And so Saving Mr. Banks was good for fifth place 
in the chart. But it never really got much better than that, that even though its box office went up the following weekend, the Christmas weekend, to 13 million, it was down to sixth place as The Wolf of Wall Street and The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, a 47 Ronin and Grudge Match came to try and take some of its money away. It hung around, though, for a little while. And in fact, it turned in quite a tidy sum by the time it was done. For a film that cost $35 million to make, its US gross alone was $83 million, a tidy little profit, add in the international takings of 34 and Disney was looking at $117 million for a film that would play in cinemas for an awful long time to build up to that level of money. When it came to the Oscars, though, as had been expected, well, only one Academy Award nomination. Emma Thompson was snubbed and didn't get recognition for her work in the film. The only Academy Award nomination in the end went to Thomas Newman for his score. And in fact, it was a fairly light, uh, a fairly light collection of awards that a film that had been expected to at least contend for quite a few of them ended up picking up. Still, there was enough in the success of Saving Mr. Banks to well, basically not discourage Disney from continuing its plan to make a brand new Mary Poppins film. And that would follow. Several years later, in the end, in 2018, we finally got Mary Poppins Returns, which was a film that fell a little bit short of expectation at the box office. That's one I will come to in a future episode of the podcast. But in the case of Saving Mr. Banks, here was a slice of Disney history that managed to make it to the screen by basically not being developed by Disney. That by taking it outside of the studio environment until very late in the day and then once Disney got involved, making it as fast as possible. I think it's a, a really refreshing and, and delicate and delightful piece of cinema one that isn't afraid just to have one or two rough edges to it where required but also had disney tried to make it itself from the off i just don't believe for a second it would have ever happened and that brings us to the end of this latest episode of film stories as always thank you so much for listening and thank you for your time if I've not completely bored you by this stage, you can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can get more from the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories. We're on Facebook.com slash Film Stories Online, YouTube.com slash Film Stories. You can find our website at FilmStories.co.uk. That covers film, TV, video games. We've got movie, we've got reviews, we've got news, we've got all sorts going on there. If you go to store.filmstories.co.uk, that's where our print magazine, I really heavily believe in print magazines you can find all of ours for sale there that's store.filmstories.co.uk as well as our uk blu-ray exclusives of bull durham and no way out with film stories extras on as well they are now out and they are shipping thank you to everyone who's supporting all of that finally the patreon again is patreon.com slash simon brew but as always i've waffled on far too long i'm going to leave you in peace now as always the most important thing is you all stay safe and well thank you so much for listening thank you for your time i will be back soon with some more film stories bye bye.